I'm happy to have on Schneps Connects today, someone who I consider a friend and a great political leader, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. He recently officially announced his candidacy for mayor of New York City. He grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, served in the NYPD, was state senator, and now is in his second term as Brooklyn Borough President. I think it's very fair to say that he is amongst the leaders in what appears to be a large group vying to be the next mayor. Great to have you on the show, Eric. Welcome. Thank you so much. And I really thank your entire team for how you get timely, intelligent, good conversation and just news on a local level, which is often overlooked. Well, thank you. And that's why we have you here today. And congrats again on your official announcement for uh, running to be the next mayor of New York City. You know, I'd love for you to just share your story, Eric. For those that don't know you, kind of just you know, your, your life story and how you became the Brooklyn Borough president? You know, I often like to say that my story is an American story. It's a New York journey. Uh, I love this city. I grew up in this city. I spent my entire life here. And when you start to go into the crevices of this journey, people often look at your resume and don't quite understand that in between every line of success, there are moments of where you were unsuccessful. And I call them dark places, as I talk about it in my introductory video. But I had to make the determination that those dark places were they going to be burials or plantings. And the, probably uh, the start of that dark place, I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, born in Brooklyn. Uh, but I was arrested as a child and my brother and I, we were beat bad by the police officers. And mom said, listen, you have to turn pain into purpose, Eric. And I did just that. I went into the police department after a group of civil rights activists asked me to go in and to reform policing from the inside. I studied, I became a police officer special assignment, a sergeant, a lieutenant, and then I retired 22 years later uh, as a captain. But while I was there, uh, some amazing things happened. One, I'm, I was extremely happy about our role in creating 100 Blacks in law enforcement who care, an organization to deal with police reform, but also my role as a computer programmer and reversing how we use data to analyze crime patterns uh, was very important to turn around the crime in our city. And then I later became a state senator and now I'm the first person of color to be the borough president. At what point, Eric, did you think about running for elected office when you were in the police force? It had to have been uh, when I was about a sergeant. I started to notice something. Number one, our city was dysfunctional at that time, particularly law enforcement was dysfunctional because we didn't believe we could be safe. And we were basically just going through the motion. And in many cases, we were creating the crime that we were looking at by the way we were patrolling the streets. But when we turned that around against all common belief at the time, I started to notice that other agencies in the city were basically creating crises for another agency. And I knew that as a police officer, we were inheriting the failures of agencies in the city. And I said, I can't just be here responding to the crime. I must take the pathway to go into politics. 
and learn how to prevent these crimes from taking place. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, each one of those experiences a little bit. And, you know, what would you say you took out of each of those three career paths that you're on? So NYPD, Senator, Brooklyn Borough President. I mean, if you could pull out one or two things from each of those roles that you're you're most proud of, what would you what would you say? When you look at uh, NYPD, uh, if, I, if I could take two, uh, one, I started the conversation of acknowledging uh, that public safety and justice can go together. We don't have to have one or the other. And by raising my voice of many other officers of color, of various colors, white, black, Hispanics, all started to embrace this concept uh, that you know people could be safe and not live in disgrace. The second was my role as a computer programmer in the city. You know, remember, Josh, at that time, we were experiencing 2,000 homicides a year, 98,000 robberies, and almost an equal amount of felonious assaults. It was a small team of us that started what was called OLTPS. It was the real first step into dealing with uh, using data uh, to turn around crime. I mean, every car had a no radio sign at the time. You know, we didn't believe we, we could be safe. When we started that process, it was a revolutionary approach to policing. Thousands of lives were saved because of that. I, I'm just so pleased at using my skill as a law enforcement officer and as a computer programmer, I was able to make a contribution to save the lives of countless number of children and I'm really pleased about that. When you go into my role as a state senator, uh, clearly it was some of the laws of being uh, the sponsor of the Rockefeller drug repeal law. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely pleased about that. To stand on the floor of the Senate and give a powerful and moving speech about uh, marriage, the marriage law, marriage equality, to see that law passed, vote for that law, and now I have people who could marry who they want based on who they love. That said everything to me, and it was a very emotional moment for me, as well as some of the other bills we were able to pass and learn how these laws impact families in a real way. And finally, as the borough president, it's about health. My program at Bellevue Hospital uh, is revolutionary in thought. Uh, you know, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Uh, the doctors told yeah. me I was going to be blind in a year. Uh, and I decided to uh, do disease reversal. And because of that, I was able to reverse my blindness, reverse my diabetes, reverse my nerve damage. And now what I did is now a program at Bellevue Hospital with, with 700 people on the waiting list, 200 people are in the program. I spoke to 1,500 doctors in Orlando, of Florida, about this concept, and people are studying what I'm doing. We are, we are on the verge of revolutionizing medicine in our city instead of living with chronic diseases mm -hmm. that we can actually reverse them. Well, listen, one of the things I also want to commend you on, Eric, is in the midst of this pandemic, you were out there, man. I mean, you were in the community handing out masks at the height of this uh, pandemic, and I think that showed a lot of great leadership because not everybody was doing that for obvious health safety um, concerns. But what was your mindset on that? Was that kind of... Um... It was 9-11. Uh, I remember 9-11 
and how we felt and how fear actually could have paralyzed our city, but instead it empowered our city. And people look towards their leaders during these times. And I'm a big believer, Josh, that uh, generals lead from the front. They don't lead from the back. They don't send their troops into battles and say, how, how was the war? Uh, they lead their troops into battles. And I saw on the faces of New Yorkers when the shutdown took place, there was a level of uncertainty. There was a level of fear. And I wanted to send a loud message that when I moved into Borough Hall and put a mattress on the floor and slept there for four months, getting up in the morning, going to NYCHA developments, housing, hospitals, uh, school safety offices, transit employees, I wanted them to know that I was going to lead them from the front. And I just believe that's the type of leadership we need in the city and country right now, a real on the ground uh, leaders to lead us in the right direction. You know, you talked about 9-11 and it's amazing to, to comprehend, but babies born on 9-11 are now voters. <laughs> yes, isn't and, that something? <laughs> and, um, and you brought up how horrific crime was as a, in a point in New York City. And, you know, you think back to 9-11, if someone was, you know, born around then, they really don't know the horrors that New York City was able to rise from. Um, so true. So and, true. And kind of bring it up because now we're we're dealing with a really difficult issue, not just in New York City, but around the country, obviously, on how the police force interacts with the community and acts of police brutality that have come up. Politically, there's been calls for defunding parts of the NYPD. But then you have the other side of people that feel like, listen, this is the this these are the people that put their lives on the line to protect us. And we need to respect them. So, you know, I agree that there has to be zero tolerance when it comes to abuse, but I think we have to figure out how to heal the police community relationship in order to have a safe and peaceful city. So what's your thoughts on all of this and your stance and, and how do you feel your experience serving in the NYPD for all those years serves you well as mayor? We can have public safety and we can have justice. They go together. They're not separated from each other. And far too often, people want to give the belief that they must be separated from each other. And I do not support that belief. And so when we engage in the conversation of a defund the police, we should not get that mixed up with those who are saying, uh, let's disband police departments or let's take money from the police department that's going to get in the way of, of keeping us safe. I believe the conversation should uh, look at, are we doing enough to make sure that this is, we're using our dollars correctly to ensure that our police department is effective? What does that look like? You must change the ecosystem of public safety to be more proactive and not just reactive. And then we need to use our manpower effectively, such as technology. There's no reason, Josh, that our office uh, off patrol and sit in courtrooms five and six hours when we can use technology nowadays to allow an officer to testify right in court, like I was able to get health and hospital to move to telemedicine. Uh, there's no reason officers who are hired to serve and protect us for dangerous crimes are doing clerical duties inside uh, buildings, doing telephone switchboard operation, barrier details, 
No, we need to use our manpower to deal with violent crimes. And so I think the better utilization of our police officers will allow us to save money, such as the almost $400 million in overtime. Uh, we can do this better and use the money we save to prevent crime. And let me just give you one example of the prevention of crime. Every year, we know six to 700 young people are going to age out of foster care at 21. We know that they're more likely uh, to be the victims of crime, participate in crime. Uh, they're more likely to have mental health illnesses. Only 12% graduate from, from high school, 3% enroll in college. If we take just $50 million of an overbloated police budget and put it into something called Fair Future, allow these children to age out at 26 with life coaches, 90% based on one study will graduate from high school, a substantial number will graduate from, attend and graduate from college, and we will start turning around crime instead of responding to crime. You know, I'd love to pivot to the economy because I, I believe the end of uh, the pandemic is the beginning of the recovery of the economy in New York City because there's been so much damage done and I don't think it's gonna turn around overnight. So what are your thoughts on ways to restart the economy, even with some in city government, especially, you know, I would say a growing socialist movement that has gained a lot of momentum that have pushed back on certain projects that are meant to create jobs. and not necessarily related to, to real estate in general, but what are other big things that can be done to help New York City economically? Great question. And uh, uh, first of all, at the heart of our economic recovery is taming COVID-19. We have to get that under control and we can't wait until we cycle out we must do everything possible to give support to small businesses now as we go through COVID-19 and there are things we, we should be doing. But the overall economic picture, number one, uh, dealing with COVID. Number two, public safety. Let me tell you, people will leave this city. Businesses won't come and open in this city if we're not safe. We learned that from the 80s and 90s. Uh, when you look at the power of our tourist dollars, uh, it's a $50 billion industry in this city, employs low-skilled, underskilled uh, people in this city. So we must have a safe city. It's the prerequisite to prosperity. Uh, the second thing is we have to become efficient as a city, Josh. And this is part of the conversation I'm going to have on this campaign trail. Uh, our city is dysfunctional, and the inefficiencies are leading to inequalities that gives, it actually gives way to injustices. And so if we don't run an efficient city, we're wasting taxpayers' dollars. Taxpayers are doing their job of paying their, ta their taxes. We are not doing our job as keepers of those tax dollars to run this city in a better manner. We create crises, and I believe that we can run a more data-driven, a more real-time governance that we will save money and put money into important initiatives. And then we need the federal bailout. There's no getting around it. Uh, we need that stimulus. Uh, the last stimulus we received, the PPP, did not get on the ground to small businesses. It went to large businesses. The banks did not do their job. The next stimulus that comes out of Washington, D.C., must get down to small businesses they are 51% of our employee pool. It's so important, important that we get small businesses up and running. 
our restaurants, uh, our small mom and pop shops. Uh, they hire locally. They ensure that the unskilled, low-skilled employees are able to have jobs as they move up in the mobility of being in our, in our economy. I think every agency can go through a 5 to 10% cut. I think that we need to re-examine how we're doing business. And then something that is extremely important, we have an over $20 billion procurement budget. We need to start procuring locally. We purchase too much of our goods and services um, outside our city. And I want to partner mm -hmm. with the state legislators and say, we need to recycle our dollars here in the city of New York. That sounds good to me. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, your health care um, and, you know, your your struggles with diabetes and really how you turned around your health with a healthy lifestyle. And that's been a big mission for you is um, living and promoting a healthy lifestyle. How do you think that could be furthered as mayor? What do you think you would look to do to help further that message? One of my favorite quotes came from a mentor, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He said this, we spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river. No one goes upstream to prevent them from falling in in the first place. That is how we run cities in America. And at the heart of the problem is this healthcare crisis that's not sustainable. 30 million Americans are diabetic. Another 84 million are pre-diabetic. Uh, diabetes is the leading cause of blindness, leading cause of non-trauma, limb amputation, one of the leading contributors to heart disease, a kidney failure, and so many other diseases are born out of diabetes. We feed the diabetes and healthcare crisis. And here's what I mean. You look at the conflict and the crisis creations from one agency to the next. The Department of Mental Health and Hygiene Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, I'm sorry, uh, they spend millions of dollars to fight childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood asthma. Yet every day, we serve our babies 960,000 meals. Those meals cause childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood asthma. Someone goes into the hospital, health and hospital corporation facilities, and they are going in with diabetes, we give them food inside that facility that causes an agri-crisis. We're going to change the food we feed people in the city. When they come in contact with a governmental each entity, ACS, Department of Corrections, Department of Education, uh, Health and Hospital, we should start teaching and treating diseases by healthy lifestyle and lifestyle changes. And I'm going to incorporate that into the entire places where we feed people in government, instead of feeding the crisis, we're going to feed good practices, good behavior. And we can do this so that we are culturally sensitive to the taste buds of people and what they're used to eating, but they can do it in a healthy way. You know, one of the last big topic issues I want to touch on with you is education. I mean, it's one of the most important oversights uh, for the mayor is the Department of Education. What are your feelings on on how it could be improved, not just during this period of COVID, but beyond? Well said, Josh. Let me let me tell you this. I'm going to throw everything I have, even the kitchen sink, at education. Education, I believe, is seventy percent of the problems that we're facing in this city, and we are just wrong with education. For the last uh, two and a half to three years. I have been meeting with neurologists and pediatricians 
that are really on the cutting edge of understanding brain development. And they said to me over and over again in all the reports that I have read in the studies and the meetings, they said, Eric, the first thousand days of life will determine the entire outcome of that child. The first thousand days of life. What does that mean? If that mother is not receiving the right prenatal care, the right nutrition, the right support, then that baby is already going to have an uphill battle. So under my administration as mayor, every mother and her first child will have a doula. She will learn about brain development. She will learn about nutrition. Do you know if a mother has doesn't have the right amount of folic acid, the right amount of iron, that child could be born with cognitive issues, learning disabilities. We actually turn on and off genes and genetic genetic markers while that child is in the mother's womb. And here's what's really interesting that really is part of the unbelievable research. Do you know a baby girl at the time she is in her mother She's born at 20 weeks of gestation with every egg she will have for the rest of her life. And the trauma and the like, lack of nutrition could be passed on to the eggs. So not only are we impacting one generation, we impacting future generations. So we are going to give those first thousand days of life to information to our mothers, teach them how to participate in brain development, neuron growth, the right synaptic connections. So when the time for children to start 3K and pre-K, they would be not behind, but they would be at the right places. Then we're going to change nutrition in our school, as I stated. And then we're going to do something else that's, that's important. We're going to use the summertime not to have summers off. That's an agrarian calendar, Josh. No one is going to pick corn anymore in the summertime. Why are we still having two months off with a summer slide? We're going to use those times, even if children are not in the classroom, we can use remote learning to look at independent uh, learning practices to zero in on those skills that children are going to need, like critical thinking, operating in group, communication skills, financial literacy. We have to have continuing instruction throughout the entire year so that children can remain engaged and continue to be competitive. We're going to put meditation in our classes to deal with some of the trauma and mental health that children are dealing are dealing with every day. We're going to teach them vertical farming and, and, also, and uh, hydroponics to learn how to grow healthy food and build a healthy lifestyle and have a nutritional academic uh, curriculum. And then we're going to tie our business community into assisting us and developing curriculum because many of our young people are not prepared to fill the jobs of tomorrow because we are teaching them 18th century education in a 21st century city. Being in the Department of Education can't be schooling. It must be education. We have to change the experience of our children in school, scale up what's successful, change what's not, and be ready for the 21st century. I love the issue of tackling, you know, education for new parents because you need training experience basically for any job you have, except the greatest job in life, which is a parent. So it would be nice that people could tap into that. You know, just to to close off, Eric, you know, for, for people that don't read a lot of news or, you know, don't keep up to date on everything. I mean, in summary, 
What would you say to our listeners is why you're most qualified and the best candidate to be the next mayor of New York City? I'm an American story. I have spent my entire life helping people who live the life that I live, who are living the life that I live. I know what it is to be in poverty. I know what it is to carry a garbage bag full of clothing to school every day because you thought the marshals were going to throw you out of home, your home and you wanted a change of clothing. I know what it is to see the highest level of authority abuse you as a child, but turning that pain into purpose by going into that agency. I know how to run a city efficiently. I know that the inefficiencies of this city is creating the inequalities. And most importantly, I'm a unifier. Uh, I know how it is to go throughout this whole city and bring people together. When you look at my donor base, people often talk about Eric raised the most money, uh, but one reporter said, the real story here, Eric, is that you look at the last names of the people who contribute to your campaign, they're just about every ethnic group in the city. You are the United Nations candidate. That's what we are right now. Right now, this city needs someone that understands law enforcement and the city being safe, understand to put a team together to deal with the real crisis, education, economy, affordable housing, and all those other important issues. And my life, the totality of my life has prepared me for this moment to lead this city in the right direction. Well, Eric, I wish you the best of the luck on this new journey to become mayor of New York City. And I very much appreciate you taking the time to be on the Schneps Connects podcast. Thank you very much. And continue to do the great things your communication network is doing. Take care. Thank, thank you again, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Schneps Connect podcast. We have a new episode coming out every week. You can listen to the podcast wherever you stream your podcast, or you can get them at schnepsmedia.com. Thank you. <laughs>